One of America's largest banks, Silicon Valley Bank, has failed. The repercussions of this go beyond the bank itself and beyond California. This story actually has significance for us, for our lives, and also tells us a lot about the federal government, about economic policy, and the goal of those at the World Economic Forum to force people eventually to rely on a centralized government-run bank. So here to break this all down, explaining it to us like we are five in the words of Michael Scott. And to actually make us feel a lot better about this chaos is Carol Roth, economic expert and former investment banker. Then we've got a fun, unrelated segment rating some of the best and worst of Oscar's attire. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout for a discount. That's GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. Carol, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on what I know is a busy day for you. Can you tell us a little bit first about who you are and what you do? Sure. I I kind of call myself a collector of experiences. I'm a recovering investment banker and author. Uh, Many people know me from Twitter or television. Investors sit on boards. So I do all kinds of things, but I really have come from the financial space. And I think what makes me different than a lot of folks out there is I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Hmm. So I came from a, a father who was an electrician, a mom who was sort of a a hobby entrepreneur, and they really believed in the American dream. And I have been able, you know, through their hard work and then my own hard work to achieve that American dream. And I see that being tamped down for a lot of people. So it's my passion point to preserve that for everybody. Yeah. And that's exactly why we wanted you specifically on, because there's a lot of financial experts out there. But look, my my audience, we, we don't typically focus on financial stories. It's just not really my beat. And it's not always the primary interest of my audience. But yesterday I asked on Instagram, as I often do on Sundays, what do you want to hear about? And almost every answer was, tell me what is going on with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. What is this? Should I care? Does it affect my yeah. life? Is it just a bunch of rich tech entrepreneurs that got screwed or or what's going on here so let's back up what is silicon valley bank and just kind of in summary what happened on friday Yeah. So Silicon Valley Bank was one of the 20 largest banks in the United States. And this is why the story has become so big. They were a big friend and partner to the technology industry. So if you think about all of the startups in Silicon Valley, um, a very large portion of them, as well as other small businesses and individuals and other businesses, had relationships that built this up into a very formidable, what we would call a region bank, not necessarily one of the ones you would see all across the country, but they did have a few different geographic locations. So that's a little bit about who they are. What happened to them is you know, a crazy story that we have to kind of rewind a little bit um, and talk about the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is this quasi-private public entity that is charged with keeping stability in the economy. They are supposed to hold down inflation and they're supposed to maximize employment. As you can probably guess, based on what's going around, they're not doing the best job with that. 
And unfortunately, as this sort of central planning entity, they are, in my own words, sort of playing God with the economy and the financial markets, saying us as a small group of people are going to make these policy decisions and you know everything is going to flow from there and it ends up having ripple effects. So coming out of the Great Recession financial crisis, one of the things they did is they decided to make policy to basically spur the economy. And part of what they did was hold down interest rates at an artificial level, and that injected a bunch of of money into the economy so that the economy could grow and come out of the Great Recession financial crisis, a quote unquote emergency measure. The problem is that they kept that emergency measure in place for the greater part of 15 years. And so when you do something that is unusual and you have this central planning kind of putting their thumb on the scale, Mm -hmm. there's always going to be reverberations. So fast forward to today and, you know, the COVID policies that came out of 2020, you had the Fed, again, standing by uh, taking their interest rates uh, down to zero. There was government stimulus in the economy and there was a lot of money sloshing around trying to find places to go. So in Silicon Valley, all of the businesses and individuals went to the bank and they deposited their money in the bank and the bank grew their deposits by like triple the amount. They tripled them between 2019 and 2021. Mm. Now, what the bank is supposed to do then is take that money and loan it out. But unfortunately, at this point, people had had enough loans or they couldn't find enough great companies. It was kind of the end of the financial and this cycle. Is, and this is, in, this is during COVID. So is that part of the reason why maybe not as many people were taking out loans during that time? They just weren't taking a lot of risk? That potentially could be a reason as well, or that you know the bank was perhaps concerned about what the business would look like coming out of COVID and wanted mm-hmm. a little bit more information. So they couldn't find... Um, anything to do with all of these deposits they had taken in. They weren't going to lend them out. So they said, we're just going to invest them. And they decided to invest them in what they thought would be safe, treasury securities, mortgage-backed securities. Kind of what's the, that? The big... I'm, I'm sorry to ask you probably such a rudimentary question, but w- what's a security? What's a treasury security and a mortgage-backed security? Yeah. So a treasury security is basically how the government finances itself. It puts out um, obligations that people say, oh, the government is going to pay back. And they have very different durations. They can be really short durations or they could be 10 years or they could be 30 years. That's sort of kind of the the spread from a very you know short number of you know maybe 30 days up to up to 30 years. So all, hmm. uh, all across the spectrum. Mortgage-backed securities, just like same thing, like uh, what it sounds like. It's packaging up mortgages and saying, you know, basically this is is what's going to back the security. So these are considered kind of the stability um, factor for the financial system. So the bank said, well, we're going to go put our money in these. This this should be safe. We're going to get, you know, at the time, as I said, the interest rates were very low. So we're going to get, you know, one plus percent, you know, more than one, but less than two percent. 
But they lock that up for 10 years instead of buying maybe a one year or a two year or even a five year security. They locked that up for 10 years. Hmm. And this was incredibly stupid because these are bankers. And the head of the Silicon Valley Bank was also a member of one of the regional Fed banks. So they should have known at some point that the Fed was not going to be able to keep interest rates artificially low forever and interest rates would increase. And what happens with bond securities like a, a treasury, for example, is when interest rates go up, the bond prices go down mm -hmm. and vice versa. They mm -hmm. balance each other out. Mm -hmm. So there's an inverse proportion there. So when the Federal Reserve um, ended up in a situation where there was tons of inflation and, and, and they had to feel like they had to do something, that's when they decided to raise interest rates, which again, something that if you are a banker, you should have known that that was coming. Mm -hmm. And what did we just say? There's an inverse relationship between the bond prices and the interest rates. So when the interest rates go up, the bond prices go down. The Fed raises interest rates. Allie, what happens to the bond prices? The It goes down. It goes down, exactly. Yes. So we've got that inverse relationship. So you have these 10-year bonds, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities that are on the balance sheet, which if they hold them for the 10 years, it doesn't matter because they're still going to get to maturity. They're not going to lose any money. They're going to get paid their interest rates. But if for some reason they had to sell them, then the market is now saying they are worth worth less because we could get more interest buying a different bond. So we're going to pay you less for the one that, that has a, a smaller interest rate. So as interest rates are going up, the people who have their deposits in the bank are going, well, I'm not getting very much on my deposit in the bank, Silicon Valley Bank. I could go buy a treasury, which, you know, over recent days and weeks, you could get 5% on a treasury of a, a short duration. So I'm going to pull my money out and I'm going to go look somewhere else. Or maybe because the economy is slowing down, I'm going to pull more of my money out for operating capital. So they had this money locked up. And now they can't pay back all of these depositors who Got are it. pulling out more money than was expected. Got it. So to do that, they had to sell their bonds at a loss. Okay. Now again, so they lost money. They did on, on that, which again, they shouldn't have had to do. There are other things they could have done. They could have gone out and you know, raise capital, but just the way they communicated this to the market and the steps that they they took, the, their customers who are very close knit, they're in Silicon Valley, they're all talking to each other on Slack channels go, oh my goodness, did you see what, what's happening? If more people pull it out, they're not gonna be able to, to cover all of this. I better get my money out now and that created panic for the next person, and that created panic for the next person, and all of these entities started pulling money out, which is what is considered a bank run. And if the individuals mm. don't feel comfortable and in good faith that their deposits are secure, particularly in this case, because so many of these were corporate clients, they had balances that far exceeded the insurance limits from FDIC, 
there were just a ton of uninsured balances, which made them even more eager to pull that money out and create safety. And that created the situation that we're in today. All right. Quick pause to tell you about our first sponsor for the day. You know them. You love them. And that is Good Ranchers. Even if you are already a faithful subscriber to Good Ranchers, you get that box of American meat to your front door every month. And if you're not, you should be. But either way, they've got a really awesome deal for you. It's March Meatness at Good Ranchers. You can win over $2,000 in free meat. All you have to do is fill out your March meatness bracket at goodranchers.com slash March. That's goodranchers.com slash March to possibly win free meat for a year. And not only that, you can subscribe right now and get free bacon for a year. That's a really good deal. We love bacon in the Stucky household. Free bacon for a year this month. Over $100 of free Applewood smoked bacon when you subscribe. Plus, we're not done. Plus, you can use code Allie at checkout to get $20 off your first order. So $20 off your first order with promo code Allie. Subscribe. Get free bacon for a year this month. And whether you subscribe or not, just fill out your bracket. GoToRanchers.com slash March. Win free meat for a year, possibly if you are selected. Um, I love Good Ranchers, love the people who run it, love what they're about, love that it's all American meat, love that it's run by people who love America and love God. I mean, what else could you ask for, honestly? So go to GoodRanchers.com. That's American Meat Delivered. Use code Allie at checkout. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. Okay, let me see if I can summarize it and you correct the the points that are incorrect. And so basically... Um, uh, okay. So let me, let me go back. So you said from 2019 to 2021, people were taking out fewer loans than they had before, but banks have to put their, but on top of that, they had got putting in a lot of money. So people were depositing a lot of money, depositing a lot of money. So they had all this money to loan out, right? but not enough loans to give out. Okay. But, and that is how banks typically put their money to work. So when people are depositing money, they typically use that money when people are taking out loans, correct? But because fewer people were taking out loans, they put them to work in a different way, which was through these mortgage-backed securities, through these treasury securities. That didn't Correct. work out for them for a number of reasons. They didn't foresee, for some reason, that interest rates would go <laughs> up. So the value of those bonds went down. So when people started then, okay, you're going to have to, you might have to pick up from there. Basically, they had to sell those bonds at a lower value. So they lost money. So they didn't have enough money when people wanted to take their money out to give them the money. And so then people started freaking out and saying, well, I want my money before you run out of all of your money. And then they didn't have enough money to give to the people that wanted to take out all of their money. And that's called a bank run, right? Basically, I think a couple of points to underscore here, just so that everyone can really dig in, is that if people weren't pulling out their deposits at a higher rate than they had anticipated, they anticipate some level of people are going to pull their deposits. That's normal course of business. So they certainly had some plans for that. But it was the fact that they had more people who were pulling it out than they had anticipated. So these long-term securities, which again, if they had held them the 10 years, they wouldn't have had to take a loss on them. Today, 
were trading at a loss. So yes. it was what we call a, a timing issue and a liquidity issue. They mm -hmm. didn't have enough money to be able to pay back today. It wasn't that they were insolvent. It wasn't even that they had made toxic or bad loans or, you know, kind of bad bets that went sour in the moment. It was a, a really this timing issue. And that's something, as I said, again, that a bank of that size and sophistication should have been able to work around. And frankly, the Federal Reserve, who's stepped in here to create some backstops, could have done that at that point in time. I don't know if they were just arrogant or, you know, just in such a bubble that they didn't realize that this communication, the way that they were going to communicate this issue to the market was going to cause their clients to panic yeah. and to accelerate the pullouts um, of, you know, of these deposits. But that's what ended up happening. Yeah. And then, you know, once you have it, that happened with one bank, then everybody else starts to panic. And the system is built on people not panicking. It's built on and trust, right? It's built on trust, which, you know, given the fact that the dollar is only backed by faith and trust in the U.S. government, the US which government. is really the you know U.S. economy and, right. and the productivity of U.S. workers, um, you know, there's not a lot backing it there. So when anything happens to breach that, particularly given the, the broader macroeconomic backdrop, it's not like we have this fabulous economic backdrop and everyone's like, oh, you know, this should be fine. Yeah. People are sort of on edge about what's anyway. going to happen and what's going to be the next shoe to drop. Right. And there are a lot of parallels in the broader market that are reminding people of previous financial crisis times and just little data points that are putting everyone on edge. So nobody wants to be left holding the bag here. Yeah. So this is like if people want a reference point in popular culture, if you think of that famous scene in It's a Wonderful Life when they're about to leave for the honeymoon and then he looks around and he he sees that there's a bank run happening at the bank um, at a uh, I forget what the bank is called. I can't think of it at the top of my head on It's a Wonderful Life. And he has to go back there and all the people run into uh, run into the bank and they say, I want my money out. And he's like, oh, I'll give you as little money as possible, but I can't give you your money because it's not actually here. It's in your home and it's in your home. And so I can give you a little bit, but I can't give you this $200 that you, yeah. that you have here. And then, of course, part of the part of the movie is about them building uh, building back up through people's charity. But anyway, and so if people kind of want to understand a little bit of what is going on here, it's not an exact parallel, of course. So people have been talking about afterwards, people are shorting the stock. What does that mean? What does shorting the stock mean? And how does that relate to what happened to SVB? So if um, so, there's two different mechanisms in terms of making a, a bet against a stock. So normally, if you know, we think about stocks, we think a great stock is going to go up. We buy the stock because we think that it's going to go up, right? If you think the stock is going to go down and you own it, you sell the stock, right? Because you want to protect whatever you've made or you don't want to incur more losses. But if you don't own the stock and you decide it's still going to go down, you might borrow that stock from somebody who does own it and then sell it, hoping that it goes down and then you can collect your money and, uh, you know, 
pay back the person that you borrowed from. So that, that's basically the idea behind short selling. But there was a tremendous downward pressure, both in, in companies or excuse me, investment firms that owned this company directly, as well as those who wanted to make bets against Silicon Valley Bank, as well as other regional financial firms. And frankly, as well as the big banks, because right now everybody's nervous. What does this mean for bank earnings and the financial system? regulation and and so on and so forth. So it really does spread throughout the financial system. And tell me how the federal government is responding to this or is poised to respond to it. Yeah. So what we know right now, and this is all unfolding real time, is, you know, this, by the way, happened really, really quickly. Normally, you don't see something unfold. I mean, this happened within 48 hours of the panic and the decision to close the bank. So this this was sort of unprecedented, particularly for a bank of this size. Um, So what happened over the weekend is that the federal government, you know, the Fed and the Treasury put out a joint press release together that said they are basically going to make sure that anybody who is not only a depositor of this bank, but another bank that they closed, Signature Bank, another regional bank, this one was based in New York, that they they closed this other bank But they said, we are going to make sure that whether you exceed that FDIC insurance limit, we're going to make sure your deposits are secure. Mm -hmm. And this is a very specific thing. They have very specific ways that they're doing it. One of the, the narratives that's going on around is that this is a bank bailout. And I disagree with that. This, hmm. It's very nuanced, but okay. they're not protecting the shareholders. They are not protecting management. They have shown management the door. They are basically just trying to create some of that, restore some of that faith in the system so that this doesn't become a full on contagion and they don't want everybody to panic from their financial institutions. So they said, we're stepping in here. We're going to make sure, because remember, I told you that the securities that they had to sell were good securities. They were just long duration. So the Fed and the Treasury basically said, okay, well, we'll just, you know, we'll take those on. We'll, we'll create the, you know, we'll hold the money from that. We'll give a loan against that just to make sure everybody is taken care of. And that's frankly what they should have done before causing this panic. But, you know, we're here today because nobody decided to do that. Um, So they're trying to create this feeling that there is faith in the system and you don't have to worry the government will be there for you. So they've given sort of a somewhat explicit manner of what they're going to do for these two particular banks. And then they have also basically given a general blanket that, hey, we're going to shore up the whole financial system. We're going to make sure all the banks are safe and you don't have to worry but they haven't been real explicit about what happens if this were to happen somewhere else. So hmm. we'll see. We'll see if that's good enough to sort of, um, you know, allay people's fears or if that's not good enough and they're going to need to be more explicit about what steps they're taking. But that's the the dialogue that has come out, um, you know, as of you know, the beginning of the day Monday. And, you know, this this narrative is probably far from over. 
Okay, so you disagree with those who are saying, because I would say people on the conservative side are saying, well, Biden is just bailing out these billionaires because they're his liberal friends or whatever. You don't think that's really what's going on. I mean, here's the alternative. And, and let's just let's talk about how this this works. So let's take a company like Etsy. Are you are you familiar with Etsy? Yes, yes. Wonderful site. A lot of artists and entrepreneurs who are selling their wares. So the parent company of Etsy keeps their money, all the cash that they use to manage their business in Silicon Valley Bank, or not all of it, but a, a large chunk of it right. in Silicon Valley Bank. So if you have sold on Etsy and you're awaiting payment from them, their payment is now, or, or before this, was not available. That mm. They had to put a note out to their entire customer base saying, you know, we're trying to sort through this. Like we might not be able to pay you for some time and God forbid this, you know, became a bigger thing. It may be is at all. So do you really want those small business owners who are, you know, making wonderful products to not get paid because you're trying to stick it to some Silicon Valley bro? Like I, I, I don't understand the mentality. If this was called, you know, small bank of, you know, Iowa, I don't yeah. think people would be having the same reaction. So again, the shareholders were not protected. The management team was not protected. But if you all of a sudden tell, put out the signal that we're not going to help depositors, we're basically going to take down the entire banking system. And, you know, we have many more people's deposits who will be at risk. We have a lot of small businesses who will be at risk and it will you know, potentially could just collapse the entire financial system. Now, that being said, <laughs> not to say that there aren't many, many problems with the U.S. financial system and we're in a slow burn um, towards a new financial world order anyway, but I'm not in the camp that we like torched a whole thing overnight. Right. I don't think that would be great for people. I'd rather inform people, have them get prepared, do what they can to protect themselves yeah. and then let, you know, everything try, try to avoid that. But if it goes in that direction, at least be prepared for that. So yeah. I think that the narrative around, oh, this is a, a bailout for, you know, Biden is is really politicizing. If, if Trump were there and it was called the Small Business Bank of Iowa, people would be feeling different. So think about it on principles, not on the specific names attached and know that it just because it starts there doesn't mean that it ends there. And this would not be a good outcome for just about anybody. Okay, this is a new sponsor, a sponsor that I talked about once last week, and I'm just so excited to introduce to you, and that is Seven Weeks Coffee. This is a coffee company doing good for the most vulnerable in our society, and that is pre-born children. So I don't know if you know this, but at seven weeks gestation, that's when a baby is the size of a coffee bean. So that's how they came up with the name of their coffee company. Here's what they do. They donate 10% of every sale to pregnancy care centers across America. If you have not listened to the episode that I did a couple of weeks ago with the director of a pregnancy center, pregnancy center to hear about how these centers are helping or resourcing these women and families in crisis, it's really incredible. So you can buy amazing high quality coffee from this pro-life company and your purchase is automatically helping those pregnancy centers. Like you just don't know 
how this purchase is going to help save someone's life or help a mom be prepared to bring her child into the world. So if you're tired of spending your money at those communist coffee companies, get your coffee from Seven Weeks Coffee. Go to sevenweekscoffee.com. Let your coffee serve a greater purpose. Use promo code Allie at checkout. You'll get 10% off your order. So sevenweekscoffee.com to help those pregnancy centers get great coffee. Use promo code Allie at checkout for 10% off sevenweekscoffee.com. You put it this way, or one point this way on Twitter, you said a key takeaway from the Silicon Valley bank drama is the same as it ever was. The Fed is a consolidator of wealth. Over time, the biggest and wealthiest benefit from Fed policy at the expense of everyone else. The great consolidation continues on the back of the Fed. And something that I've seen you talk about in commentary is this kind of movement towards um, I mean, this would be, again, kind of the slow burn and the radical long term goal of getting rid of banks and the Fed saying, you know what, yes. but we're here. You don't know, need all of these little <laughs> banks. We are the central bank that you really can trust. And this is kind of a movement that we're seeing globally. So tell us a, a little bit about that and how this does perhaps play into what I know you write about a lot, which is this radical uh, revolution of not just the American, but also the global financial market. Yeah. So uh, let me draw a parallel that I think people will be able to really understand between what happened here and what happened with COVID policy. What happened with COVID policy is they said, small businesses, you need to shut down. And these big companies that do the same thing as you do, we're going to keep them open. And so the dollars went from small businesses to the biggest companies in the world. And then, as I mentioned, when we were first starting this conversation, the Federal Reserve came in with their policy, which jacked up the stock prices. I mean, you had... I think it was seven tech companies that gained $3.4 trillion in value during 2020 on the back of both this direct policy of shutting down small businesses and then the Fed policy of suppressing interest rates, easy access to capital, cheap access to capital. And so what that did was it consolidated more money and power um, within these bigger entities and less against the decentralized part of the economy in terms of small business. And you're seeing the same thing here, that to the extent that you say, well, you know, we can't trust these regional banks, you know, they, they're, they're a systemic risk, um, or you let them uh, completely fail and then you change around some of the laws, you know, because it's a crisis and an emergency that would allow some of the bigger banks to pick off, you know, some of their assets. It is that, again, that consolidation taking away from smaller, even though this was a top 20 bank, you know, it's still a lot smaller than the JP Morgans and the Wells Fargo's and the Bank of America's of the world. It's that movement towards consolidating power in a handful of banks, or even worse, that they use the cover story, as you had alluded to, as well, we can't have bank runs. Um, you know, we can't have this, this this scenario where your deposits aren't available. So the Fed, we're just going to control this all with a digital dollar, and you'll never have to worry about that. The downside of that is the loss of freedom and control. What they're trying to do, and what they're exploring and their tests that they're conducting as we speak 
on central bank digital currencies or CBDCs is the ability for them to have complete control. I mean, imagine like a dollar that you have, you know, sitting sitting around. Imagine it had a tracking chip in it and they could track right. the movement anytime you went and you spent. And if they didn't like what you were spending on, theoretically, they could say, sorry, that dollar isn't valid today, mm -hmm. or it's only valid if you spend it with these stores. I mean, think about how much power <laughs> and control that would give them. Right. And for anyone who thinks this is a conspiracy, we've all lived through COVID and we saw the things that were done here, Canada, around the world. It's not a very big leap to think that that could happen. And plus, we're actually already seeing banks, not a central bank, but we're see already seeing banks and credit card companies saying, well, we're not going to allow you to use these funds to purchase a gun. You're not going to be right. able to go to these gun stores. And so, I mean, if these quote unquote private companies um, are already kind of um, imposing their values on the customer by saying you're not going to be allowed to use your own money to be able to purchase things that we don't politically agree with, then of course, I think that we can all understand, we can all deduce very easily that the federal government would certainly do that. And we already see that kind of thing in China. So tell us what ESG, which we've talked about several times on this show, environmental, social, governance score, these points that basically all of these companies are trying to score. Tell us what this has to do with this, because as, as I've seen a lot of people report, Silicon Valley, very high ESG score. That means in kind of our terms, extremely woke. Um, there were a lot of reports on the different risk management people at SVB who were very focused on diversity, very focused on equity and inclusion and all of the different activism sectors in the left wing world. And, uh, you know, I don't know if one has to do with the other, but I'm curious to hear your assessment. I mean, were they too woke for their own good or are those kind of two separate issues? So I always hate the word woke because I don't think that it always communicates, you know, some of the deliberate and nefarious actions that are going on around things like ESG. I mean, ESG yeah. is business social credit. It's yeah. a score, but it's not a well-defined score because yeah. it changes based on the whim and the decisions and the needs of, you know, these group of elite and what it is that they want to um, have benefit them by the day. And that's very, very scary. And so they're and you're using referencing that mostly like the World Economic Forum, but also the global leaders that are kind of in with the WEF. Yeah, I mean, all of the uh, political and business elite that are tied into, you know, the UN, the WEF and a number of organizations around the world. And this has infiltrated. And it's really kind of crazy because if you go into organizations who are pushing ESG, a lot of times the CEO doesn't know what it means. I met somebody who was mm -hmm. in charge of ESG for a publicly traded company who'd never even heard of the World Economic Forum. So they don't even know yeah. where these ideas yeah. are coming from, but yet it's sort of, you know, 
basically creating a distraction. And I think that's the message that we want to take away here. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a cultural war other than we don't want people who are in a small group of people coming in and using business and using your own investment funds to be able to push their political agenda. Businesses work for certain reasons. And one of them is their laser focus on creating shareholder value. And when you push things like ESG and all of the other alphabet soup that's, you know, related to it. And you have the bank that's focused on trying to please these other masters. It does take the eye off the ball. So I think it's a very valid question is whether it's at the SEC level, whether it's at the Fed, whether it's within the banks, all of these pushes for climate justice and, you know, DEI and all of these things that aren't related to running a business what kind of impact are they having on really important businesses that are fundamental you know, to the economy running smoothly? And I think that that is an important takeaway and one that we should not push to the side, that businesses need to be focused on their shareholders. Their directors need to be doing a fiduciary duty, making sure that the shareholders are being taken care of. And within the market mechanisms, other things sort themselves out. And if we start distracting them, you know, not only are there evil ideas being infiltrated, but it really can bring down really important systems Systemic businesses that will completely obliterate the economy. Now, you can make the argument that that's intentional. I'll leave that up to you. But whether it's intentional or incompetence, the outcome is still bad. And so mm -hmm. we still need to stand up and say enough's enough. We can't have more of this infiltrating the business space. Yep. And people are concerned about this. And I think rightly so, not just in the banking industry, not just when it comes to economic issues, but really every industry. People are yeah. worried about this, you know, as you mentioned, alphabet soup, all of the different, you know, acronyms that are a part of left wing activism, distracting students in the education system. Is that why our reading levels are so low? And Correct. they are spending less time learning math and science and more time learning about so-called gender equity or whatever it is. We're worried about that in the aviation industry. We're, we're worried about that in the medical industry, that actually yeah. these people who should just be focused on excellence, should be focused on competence, should be focused on safety are, I mean, there's only, there's a finite number of hours in a day and especially in the workday. And so what are we sacrificing um, in order to focus our efforts, our energy, our time, our excellence, our money on this left-wing activism that we are actually told, oh, well, we can do both. We can focus on DEI <laughs> and all of these inclusion efforts and be competent. Well, I say prove it because actually what's being proven in all of these different industries is the opposite. You're proving that taking time away from competence and excellence and serving your customers and all of that stuff and focusing on activism is actually manifesting itself in a lot of chaos and a lot of failure in all of the different industries that we just listed. And you yep. mentioned, okay, either it's just incompetence, these all these well-intentioned people just really do want a more equitable and inclusive world, and I'm sure that's true of some of them, or if it is a 
you know, a purposeful decline. And you're writing a book or you've already written it. It comes out this summer about you will own nothing. Well, everything we're talking about, especially in the last few minutes, is a part of that. That is a slogan that we've heard from the World Economic Forum by 2030 or whenever it is, you will own nothing and be happy. And it's hard for me to hear that motto and to see the decline of all of these once excellent industries, especially in the United States, because of these left-wing efforts and not think, well, it seems purposeful to me. It seems purposeful to me to put all of our trust you know, out of the private sector and put it into the government. And then the government has all the power in the world to, quote unquote, take care of us. So tell us how you see it. Tell us what this book is about and how some of what we're talking about today has to do with that. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, Financial world orders go in cycle. This idea that a new financial world order is coming about sounds very conspiratorial yeah. until you look back in history. We have been the world's um, you know, reserve currency and kind of the center of the financial world for about 80 years. I know that we all think it's been since the beginning of time, but it hasn't. It was the British before us. It was the Dutch before the British. If you go even further back, you know, it was the Roman Empire and these empires financial empires always rise and they always fall based on the same issues. And they're things like debasing the currency and the government getting too big and taking on too much debt and they get desperate. So we know that that is happening and we just don't know how long we have until things change. But the people who are smart and well-connected see this happening. And so they are, in my opinion, jockeying to come out on top based on whatever reshuffling of the financial order is going to happen. And, you know, we see the events that happened over the last few days, and there's no doubt that that is tied in to late stage financial empire stuff. And as we saw, the elite jockeying to make sure that they're taken care of. So there are all of these different things that are happening at once, you know, whether you have the push for social credit at the individual level or the business level through ESG, you know, the Fed exploring this central bank digital currency, big entities, corporations competing with you to buy single family homes, big wealthy people buying up land and water rights, um, technology, BlackRock, Vanguard, probably others that I haven't even heard of. Yeah. I mean, on the land and water rights, you know, Harvard University, that what Mm. I call the, uh, the, a hedge fund with the masquerading as a university or what the university is attached, you know, they're going out and they're doing all of these things that are creating impediments to ownership and ownership is what creates wealth. You know, it's one thing to make a living, but when you put that money to work for you, when you build assets that retain value and have the opportunity perhaps to even grow in value, that's what locks in your wealth. And at every turn, every sort of aspect of the financial elite, whether it be the government and the Fed, whether it's these big global NGOs and big businesses and big tech, you know, they're all working to secure more of that for themselves and in the process, leave you owning nothing. So what the book um, will do is explain everything that's going on, you know, kind of like we've been doing here, very easy to understand broken down by topic, 
And the message isn't for you to panic. It's to give you the tools to fight back. I want you to own everything. I want you to get in to hard assets and to be figuring out ways that you can shift your financial lifestyle so that you are creating that opportunity to own things. Because if you don't have that ownership, you will not be able to pursue that that American dream. And frankly, if you own nothing, they own you. And we cannot have that. Every sort of, you know, ism, you know, Marxism, communism, you know, any bad sort of central planning part of the spectrum, they don't believe in property rights because you owning something gives you power and gives you that opportunity to create wealth and independence and freedom. And they don't want that. And unfortunately, we're moving in that direction. So we need to band together and fight and preserve that American dream for everybody. And nowadays, just with how the economy is, you don't just fall into ownership. It takes a lot more strategy and a lot more foresight and a lot more thought than it did before, which is why people like you and your book are so important. Because, I mean, not all of us are going to kind of have those natural skills and that natural knowledge of how all of this works. How do we make sure that we invest in those hard assets? How do we make sure that we are owning? There was a time maybe in our parents or even grandparents' generation when ownership was just kind of the default. That was what you were able to to do pretty early on in life. If you got yourself a good job, you can own a house and, you know, own it for 30 years. Now that's just a lot tougher. Even young people who are making pretty good money in their first job, they don't feel like they can afford a mortgage. They don't feel like they can afford a house. And so they're renting everything, which if I I can, if I can mention, this is one of the things we dig into the book that was so fascinating to me is that millennials, you know, in that sort of 35 to 40, age range actually make more money on an inflation adjusted basis. So accounting for inflation Mm. than Gen X did or the boomers did. I believe that. So you have more opportunity in terms of earning power, but so much less wealth, including, like you said, in terms of real estate. And that has to do with the way that the Fed has distorted the market. They've brought down the interest rates. They've made the capital more cheap um, you know, and available, but it's inflated the cost of those assets so much. So you know, our parents and grandparents, when they went to buy a house, maybe their mortgage rate was really high, but that house was inf- affordable. And that dynamic has completely flipped. And now it has not only favoring the wealthy and well-connected, but in within the last 12 years, you now have corporations who are coming in to compete to rent you the American right. dream. And we do right. not want to rent the American dream. We want to own the American dream. Okay, another amazing sponsor that I've really enjoyed talking to you guys about, and that is Epic Will. So I know a lot of us, we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and we don't want to think about death. We don't certainly want to think about an untimely death where we leave our loved ones behind. But the fact of the matter is, that is a possibility. We just don't know what tomorrow brings. And so you want to make sure that you and your family are prepared, especially your children. And a gift to leave behind for them is a will. And Epic Will makes that really easy. Getting a will can be overwhelming. You got to pay a lawyer. You got to go through all of this, all of this paperwork and this complicated process, but you don't have to do that with Epic Will. They make it really, really easy. And as little as five minutes at $119, you can save, you can have a complete will package from Epic Will. They provide you the template, you just fill in the blanks, and you'll be set with a last will and testament, a living will, even a healthcare power of, of attorney. Uh, the founder of Epic Will was raised by a single mom. 
And so they have a really cool deal that if you have kids at home under the age of 18 and you are a single mom, you get your will for free. But for all of you, if you go to epicwill.com slash Allie, you save 10% on your complete will package. Epicwill.com slash Allie, A-L-L-I-E. You'll save 10% on your complete will package. Epicwill.com slash Allie. I know that she talked about individual changes that we can be making in our lives to kind of combat that. But I mean, is there any hope for top-down change when it comes to that? I mean, it just seems like (laughs) such a huge problem. I mean, how do we really compete against the power of the Fed? To me, it's probably the fault of both Republicans and Democrats when it comes to this kind of policy. And so, I mean, is there any hope that things can change? They can go back to a time when it was you know, if you're making $100,000 a year, you can afford a pretty good house and be comfortable with your family or not really? So I would say there there are two answers to that. I mean, there absolutely is a trajectory and a path here. Do I think that there are politicians who have the wherewithal, the backbone to come in and do what's necessary? It's really tough. Have not seen it yet. So, you know, that's really going to take some major fortitude. And unfortunately, politicians tend to be very reactive, as we've seen in the events over the last few days. You could have prevented this, but no, you've chosen to act once there was panic. And unfortunately, that's the way that, you know, things go. But are there things that you can do individually to change your lifestyle, to put yourself in a better position? And whether it's owning some precious metals or maybe looking to own a smaller you know, home in a, a location that you know isn't your first location choice, but a second location choice. There are choices that you can make to make sure that you are insulated so that when, you know, whenever this completely co- becomes unraveled and there is a financial, um, you know, changeover, as again, has been done in history before, you know, Bretton Woods for the United States, but, you know, before that with the British and the Dutch, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is very well documented throughout history that when these changes happen, that you're putting yourself in a good position. And one of the data points that I've been pointing to is central banks over the last year bought a record amount of gold, 1,136 tons, which the first time they sort of kept track of this was 1950. It was the largest year since then. So, you know, if central banks think that that's something that they need to do to kind of support their financial foundation. It may or may not be right for you, but it certainly is an interesting and compelling data point. So it's, you know, all of those kinds of things that if you're not talking about finances and you don't want to kind of deal with it, I get it. But at some point, you're going to need to take control of your financial future to create that American dream for yourself and for your family. And it can be a scary thing. And so that's why I want to be here and be a partner and help, you know, kind of demystify this and make it easy for people. Because, you know, as an American, we still have people coming here from every part of the globe trying to pursue that American dream. You know, we we need to preserve that opportunity um, because it's something that's really special, you know, in terms of the history of the world. 
Well, Carol, thank you so much. Thanks for breaking that all down. Honestly, I feel better after hearing you explain it. Good. There are still some scary things in the world, but definitely hearing you reasonably kind of talk through what this actually means and that there are steps that we can take in our own lives to protect ourselves and to protect our family um, is a really good reminder. So thank you so much. Again, your book, You Will Own Nothing. It'll be out this July. It's available for pre-order now though, right? It is. It is. And in fact, if you go to carolroth.com slash nothing, we're actually going to be doing some really cool pre-order bonuses. So Sweet. you can you can go right now and pre-order it. But if you want to get a bonus, which I always like to get a little something extra, you want to own something, yeah. um, you know, go to carolroth.com slash nothing, leave your email, and okay. then I'll get back to you and and you know when we have the bonuses up, which I think should be really soon. But I think, to, Allie, to take away what you were saying, it is, you know, basically you want to pray <laughs> for good outcomes. You want to pray that we're going to have that calmness, but you also want to prepare for chaos. Yeah. So, you know, you, you want to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. It's not about panicking. It's just about preparation. So hopefully if you move through it that way, that will give you some comfort. And also, you know, anybody in your audience who wants to reach out for me and need reach out to me and need some reassurance, um, I'm very accessible as well. Pray for calm, prepare for chaos. I like that. Yeah. That's really good. And a good note to end on. And yes, we'll put the link to that, carolroth.com slash nothing, correct? Correct. And we'll put that link in the description and everyone pre-order your book, follow you on Twitter and all that good stuff. Thank you so much, awesome. Carol, for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for making this platform available. I appreciate it. Okay, last break, and this is a really special break. I've got a special announcement for you because it has to do with one of my favorite hosts at Blaze TV because he is so clear and courageous, and that is Steve Dace. I've had him on my show several times, and he has a movie coming out based on a book that he wrote. I don't know how he has time to do all the things that he does, but I'm glad that he does because this is um, a book that is like a modern day screw tape letter. So you guys know I'm a really big fan of C.S. Lewis. I'm a really big fan of Mere Christianity screw tape letters. And this movie called Nefarious is like modern day screw tape letters. Um, it's based on a book um, by Steve Days and made by the same filmmakers behind Unplanned and God's Not Dead. It's a psychological thriller that deals with the true nature of good and evil. It's also just good entertainment. It's just a good story that I know that you're going to enjoy. And also Glenn Beck is in it. He's got a little cameo role in the film. So I encourage you to watch the trailer now at whoisnefarious.com. This is a great film to take everyone to, but especially your non-church friends. It's a very creative, interesting way to kind of introduce them to the foundational concepts of belief in God and Christianity. Go to whoisnefarious.com. Mark your calendars April 14th. That's when it opens nationwide. So April 14th is when this is out. Go to whoisnefarious.com. Okay, now for a fun little segment on the Oscars. I don't know if you knew, but the Oscars happened last night, and I did not watch any of it, but per usual, I looked at some of the outfits, some of the dresses, garb on social media, and I like to assess. Now, I don't typically know the names of a lot of these actresses and actors. And so I'm going to have producer Brie come on the mic and she's probably going to have to explain who these people are. And I also like to hear her opinions about this too. And Dylan also, if he would like to share his opinions about the attire at the Oscars. Um, all right, let's go ahead and pull up the first one. I always make up the, 
the scoring metrics as I go. We'll do 10 being the worst thing that I have ever laid eyes on. No, no. Let's do the opposite. Let's 10 do let's 10 let's let 10 be beautiful, gorgeous, awesome, handsome, brilliant. Let's let one be the worst thing I've ever laid my eyes on. All right. Let's see. Um okay, who's this, Bree? So this is Zoe Saldana. She's in Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, tell me why we don't have a red carpet. Why do we have a beige carpet? Is this a, I, is this new? I did look that up. They decided to do that this year and there was not a reason and they also said it will probably not even be permanent. They just wanted to do it this year. All right. Beige carpet doesn't really have the same ring to it. Now, here's the question. Did the celebrities know beforehand that the carpet was going to be beige and not red? Do you know, Brie? I don't know that, actually, but that's a good question. It's a good question. Because she matches. She matches. That's yes, exactly. So she kind of runs into the carpet because her dress is the same is the same color. Um, well, she is very beautiful. She is maybe one of the few people that can even pull off this this color because it's really pretty with her skin tone. I don't really like what looks to be like a bra kind of coming out of the top of her dress. It looks like it should be strapless, but it it's not. <laughs> so I'm a little confused about that. It's like also like kind of lingerie, kind of not. Mm. But the shape is beautiful. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it looks like there was supposed to be a dress on top of it. Like yeah. that's the under that's the under dress. Yes. The, yeah, it does kind of look like that. It looks like a slip or something. Okay, honestly, I'm going to go with like a, a four because this beautiful person could have worn something that was way better. Yeah. Okay. Next up is... Okay, I'm going to guess these people's names. <laughs> I have never seen this person. This is also matches the carpet. Um, her name is... Um, Good luck with this one. L Lauren Marino. And she is in a movie called <laughs> Second Guessing. <laughs> That's what that. the movie's called, Second Guessing? Sure. <laughs> What's her name? I've her, never seen this name, person. Believe it or not, you didn't get, guess this. It's Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. That was next. <laughs> um, uh, this is just ugly. I mean, it's hard to pull off, as I've said before, it's hard to pull off an empire waist unless you are pregnant. Last time I said that, you were like, oh, this person is pregnant. So <laughs> I don't think this person is, though. The off-the-shoulder empire waist cinched at the bottom. It looks like it's like tied at the bottom mm -hmm. to where it's a little ploofy. They forgot to cut it, so they had to tie it at the bottom. They forgot to cut it, yeah. or she had it tied up so she could go to the bathroom, and she <laughs> forgot to let it go. Yeah. Um. She also looks very sad, and I don't like her necklace. And, yeah, it matches the carpet perfectly. And so I guess all the designers, they didn't know about that. Um. Very, very, I think, unfortunate dress. It looks like an unfortunate bridesmaid's dress. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm probably going to go with a two on this one. Mm -hmm. Also the off the shoulder look is almost always a little matronly for this yeah. young gal. What do you think? Agreed. I'd go with a two also. Okay. Next up. Ooh, love the pop of color. Okay. So this obviously contrast, this is purple. Yep. <laughs> 
but <laughs> I don't like it. I, I'm not. I'm just not like a poofy gal myself. This also from here looks like chiffon, which is a choice, and um, the sleeves are really big. Beautiful person. Who is this? This is Angela Bassett. Oh, I've heard that name, haven't I? What is? She, what was she in for? Well, this? this she was nominated for being in Black Panther this year. Oh, okay. Um, the shape of the dress is pretty minus the top. So I'm going to go with probably a four. It's very much not my style. It's very 1980s. Um, I'm going to go with four. What if I told you, and I think this is the case. Those are not sleeves. Those are like the top Wings? of her dress. And yeah, her sleeves, her like arms are bare. So it's just covering her. Let me shoulders. see. Let me see again. Um, but it looks like sleeves. It does in this photo. It looks like sleeves. It could be, but I'm pretty sure it's not. I think that it would look better minus the bow. I don't like the bow at the bottom. And if it had been strapless or if it had been like a different top, I think I would like it better. Also, I think I would have liked it because it's so much in the sleeves. I think I would have put her hair up probably. Um, stylist yeah. Alley. Yeah, stylist Alley. Um, probably would have. Probably am gonna give a four, even though she is very beautiful and it's a beautiful color on her. Mm. You sort of ruined this one for me. I liked it, and now I'm not so mm, sure. Sorry, Bree. <laughs> Changed your mind. Okay, next one. Oh no, 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 no! All of these people. It's so funny that they chose this year to wear beige. Yeah. Um, no, this is fugly. I mean, this is just awful. Um, awful, awful. No, there's nothing. There's <laughs> nothing that I like about this. I like the shoes. I would probably wear the shoes depending on what the heel looks like. I can't really tell. So, okay. So I'm forgetting that there are people listening and not watching <laughs> on YouTube, but okay. So this, how would I even describe this? So this is this, who is this? This is Florence Pugh. Oh, okay. I know that uh, this is from that one movie that also has Harry Styles in it and was directed yeah. by Olivia Wilde. And there was some drama there. But who, what, what's the movie? Don't Worry Darling. Don't Worry Darling. Okay. Um, she should be worried. She should be worried <laughs> about this dress. Okay. So it is like a mini black dress that barely covers the crotchal region. And then... But it's that's only like the bottom part. The top part is I don't even know how to describe something that covers the breast area and it's beige and then huge goes out again like empire waist, but opens up in a triangle in the front and then her off the shoulder sleeves are like as big as Saturn and off the shoulder sleeves. I mean, it's like down to her elbow. So it's very bizarre. Again, a very, very beautiful woman, but this dress would do zero people any favors whatsoever. That's my thought on it, Brie. I want you to look at the hair. I can't really see it. I okay. need glasses. <laughs> yeah, we would have to zoom in. Basically, it's like an extension, and she's draped it over her head to look like bangs. Those aren't bangs. That's Wait, like the back what? of her hair. Yeah. That's the back of her hair. It's, yeah. a, it's a ponytail that has been yeah. like, okay, so it's a ponytail going forward like this. A ponytail going <laughs> yeah. forward, but until it reaches for bangs. Yeah. Okay. It's a look. Again, another decision. 
Um, but obviously, okay, so obviously she's going for quirky. Like she's going for bizarre. That's what I always ask myself. Do people who wear things like this, are they going for beautiful? They think it's objectively beautiful or are they going for quirky? If you're going for quirky, girl, it's quirky. And <laughs> it's quirky. You still look beautiful, but it's a little weird. That's fine. These Remember, most of these people were were theater kids growing up and so they've got some dimensions to their personality (laughs) um okay do we have another one beautiful beautiful i've i think that she is like very beautiful and unique looking she looks gorgeous her leg looks great her shoe looks great um again i would do without so this is kara how do you how do you say her last name delavine delavine um she's a model and i guess she acted in something too Mm, she does i don't i think she was just there this year um i think this is a beautiful dress i don't love the thing on the shoulder personally but that's just because i'm a simple gal but i think that she did this is what i'm talking about with the one that we saw angela Bassett. is that her name um who had the like puffy sleeves i feel like her hair should have been like this i like kara's hair like this i think this is a great color on her um she is someone who is like quirky and wears weird stuff typically i think that this is very oscars also she definitely benefited from not having a red carpet because this (laughs) deep red probably wouldn't have looked good so i forgot to rate the last one the last one oh florence sorry that's a zero this one (laughs) I would say like eight and a half, mm. eight and a half, nine. I really like it on her. What do you think? Yeah, this was one of my favorites. That's why I included it. I would say nine. Nine. Love it. I even love the shoulder. I think it's just different. Like a statement. It's great. Yeah. All right. You can weigh in, people. Let me know what you think about these outfits. Um, all right. That's all we've got for today. We'll see you back here tomorrow. 